Our text this evening is Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 to 7. As we consider those words of Paul in verse 4 in particular, God sent his son. God sent his son. Well, I wonder, do you have a favourite song or of a favourite song on an album or a favourite scene from a movie? And rather than watch the whole movie or listen to the whole album, you or someone else perhaps in your household just wants to play that one favourite song or that one favourite clip from the movie over and over again. Maybe boys and girls, there's particular parts of your favourite TV show or movie and, and you just want to watch those bits all the time. Um, well, that's all well and good. It's natural for us to have favourites. But if you focus too much on your favourite, you may begin to miss the bigger picture of what the author or the artist wants you to experience. Uh, that one song is perhaps only part of a broader theme being told across nine or ten songs on the album. That one scene in the movie isn't the whole story. There's more to the story than that one scene. And you might miss the rest of the story if you only focus on that one part. Well, there's something of that danger tied up with what is commonly referred to as the Christmas story. Each year, one part of the Bible is presented as though it were the whole story of the Bible. Uh, the infant, baby Jesus, the, romantic, the romanticized stories of Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds. It's presented as if it's the whole story, as if it's all anyone needs to know of the Bible. Or at least that's the danger that could come uh, unless further explanation is made of, of what was really going on in those events. And that being the case, the, the fact that that part of the Bible is almost presented as the whole story it perhaps explains why the average man or woman living in Northern Ireland in 2022 assumes that Christ's coming into the world is of absolutely no importance to them. If we give the impression that the sum total of what the Bible has to say is that a baby was born 2,000 years ago, then we fail to communicate the whole story and the importance of the story that the Bible gives us. The whole Bible is about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the, the well-loved passages that describe his arrival as an infant, but all 66 books are about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Alistair Begg sums it up this way. He says, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, he is preached. In the letters, he is being explained and in Revelation, he is expected. Great summary. Um, the sort of summary that us more average Joe preachers wish we could have come up with ourselves. But it's worth uh, remembering. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, he is preached. In the letters, he is being explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. You see, a baby born in a backwater town 2,000 years ago is of no importance or interest to men and women today unless we make abundantly clear that this particular baby grew up to be a man and was in fact God become a man. And that in human flesh, Jesus Christ grew up to fulfill the work of God in saving sinners. That work described for us all through the scriptures. And as Begg says that the letters explain Christ. And we have here in Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 
A beautiful and simple summary, a, a summary explanation from Paul about Jesus Christ and uh, what happened when he came into this world. If you look at Galatians 4 verse 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul here, friends, is explaining to us the purpose of Jesus coming into this world. And we do well to consider carefully what Paul says in these verses. I want to think, first of all, this evening about when God sent the Son. When God sent the Son. Look how Paul describes the timing of Jesus coming. Verse 4. He says, when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. Leon Morris says this is the only place in the New Testament where we see this particular phrase used, the fullness of time. Uh, You might say it's it's really Paul's way of describing God's perfect timing. At just the right time, he's saying. And I think in using this phrase, friends, Paul is emphasising to us the, the sovereignty of God. The perfect knowledge and timing of God that that he orchestrates things, that he brings things about in a way that no one else could. There's no plan B with God. There's, uh, there's no contingency planning needed for God. He is sovereign. He is in perfect control of all that has happened and will happen in this universe. And in the fullness of time, in God's perfect timing, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ that immeasurable distance that he sent them from heaven's throne to the virgin's womb. He sent them into the world of the Roman Empire. He sent them at a time when the world was becoming easier to travel around because of the, uh, the revolutionary Roman roads and infrastructure that have become a part of life. He sent them at a time when the mixing of cultures and in particular the, the growing dominance of the Greek language would make it easier than ever for the message of good news of salvation to reach the nations, to be preached and also to be written down in the New Testament. And some people suggest that these kinds of factors are in Paul's mind when he writes that God sent his son in the fullness of time. And I think those are valid observations. Obviously they are true, of course. And all of those things play a part in the perfect timing of God in sending his son and Bringing in the New Testament era. But if we look at the context of Galatians 3 and 4. If we, if we look at what Paul is saying in the wider passage. We perhaps see further meaning to Paul's words here. In the fullness of time. Paul in these passages friends is using a picture. To describe the, the unfolding of salvation if you like. Look at chapter 3 verse 23. Now we need to think carefully about what we read here. Chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, Now before faith came, and by faith he just means the Lord Jesus Christ, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And he picks up this picture of the law as a guardian in chapter 4 and verse 1, if you look at that with me. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, 
is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians, the same word again, and managers until the date set by his father. Now, what is Paul talking about here with an heir and a guardian and being enslaved to the law? Well, he's using a picture that would have been quite familiar to his first readers and listeners. In Paul's day, if a wealthy man died and his son was not yet at adult age, that son would be put under the care of a guardian or a manager until he was old enough to manage the inheritance, the estate that his wealthy father had left him. In law, that estate was his. He is the heir. But the father would fix a moment in time when the son would be mature enough and able enough to take on that inheritance himself. And so until that time appointed by his father, the son, although he is the heir, he essentially was no different from a servant or a slave in regard to the estate. In other words, he he couldn't lay hands on the estate any more than a slave could because the fullness of time had not yet come. The estate was promised to the son, but he couldn't yet fully experience it. And what Paul is saying here, friends, is he's he's already talked about Abraham and he continues to talk about Abraham in in the book of Galatians. And you remember that to Abraham, God made wonderful promises. We thought about this a little bit this morning. That through Abraham's seed, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 22, 18. But then 400 years after Abraham, God gives Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, he gives them the law. The Ten Commandments and the the civil and ceremonial laws of Moses. The law was not the fulfillment of God's promise. In fact, it only serves to show God's people how utterly undeserving and ill-equipped we are to receive God's promises. Just the way that underage son is ill-equipped to receive the father's inheritance. The law is our guardian. We look at the law and we see how lustful and deceitful and unholy and dishonourable and idolatrous we are. But, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, there was an appointed time, he says, when things would change, just as there would be for the young boy who would inherit eventually, inherit the property. The coming of Jesus into the world, friends, means that men and women no longer need to be enslaved to the law, to standards that we could never live up to, that The law through which we could never earn our salvation. Instead, we live in the era of of Christ having come. And the object of our faith being realised. And the uh, the full understanding of how it is that God heaps his blessings upon us and gives us salvation. We we understand it now in ways that in the Old Testament era believers didn't. They, they believed God and by faith as Abraham did. But they didn't know how it was that God was going to bring about salvation. They didn't know the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't know that he would die on a cross. And so they looked forward in faith. But that, that faith was under the guardianship of the law. And instead now he says the fullness of time has come. Look what he says in Galatians 4 verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, 
We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What Paul's saying there is that all of us are slaves to someone or something, friends, before Christ enters into our lives. All of us, in a sense, are under law, even if we have never heard of the Bible or never heard of the Ten Commandments or the laws contained in the Scriptures. Because all of us, by nature, are desperately trying to live up to some standard that we or the world have imposed upon us, thinking that if we meet that standard, then we have everything that we ever wanted. Earn this much money. Explore your true sexual identity. Visit these particular places. Go on this pilgrimage. Live this lifestyle. Whatever the case may be, friends, whether it's done in the name of religion or not, by nature we are under a law. A law that ultimately condemns us because we never quite get there. We never quite get the peace, the security, the love that we need. Maybe that's your position as you sit here this evening or listen in from elsewhere. If all people have to offer you is a nice story about a baby in a manger, you think, well, a baby born 2,000 years ago won't earn you your pay rise or help you pay the bills for your family or improve your physical fitness or find you that perfect life partner. Whatever it is that you have set up in your life and thought, once I get to there, I'll have everything I ever wanted. Well, friends, that baby grew up to be the man, the only man, the only liberator who could give you the peace and the security and the identity, the eternal security and peace and identity that you cannot find elsewhere. And he gives it to you absolutely freely. You take it by faith. This is what happened for us. This is what God did for us when the fullness of time had come. He sent his son to liberate the captors to give us our wonderful inheritance. If you're a Christian here this evening, let me ask you, do you live like a slave or do you live like a son? Do you live like a child who has absolute security, a secure identity, a secure love, a secure future because you believe that God the Father has sent his son Or do you live like a slave, still trying to live up to some standard or earn some imagined salvation for yourself? That will tire you out and stress you out, spiritually speaking. Or it will leave you proud and arrogant because you'll start to think that compared to others, you're pretty good. But a son... Loved and provided for by his father. Doesn't need to be anxious. And he doesn't need to be arrogant. He's secure in his father's love. And in his father's care. In the fullness of time friends. At the perfect time. God sent his son into our world. And into our lives. If we're Christians. So when God sent the son. Secondly. How God sent the son. Paul says that he sent his son, verse 4, born of woman, born under the law. Christ as a person has two natures. You and I, each of us as a person, we only have one nature, a human nature. But Jesus Christ has two natures, his divine nature, meaning that he is fully God, and his human nature, meaning that he is fully 
man, fully human. And Jesus was sent by the Father. In other words, he was in heaven with the Father. He was equal with the Father from all eternity. And yet he came down and was born of a woman. Another way of putting it is that Jesus coming into the world was planned in eternity and a miracle in time. It was planned in eternity and it was a miracle in time. First of all, it was planned in eternity that God would send his son. And Paul in this passage, of course, is touching on the, the, the persons and the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Paul says here, and the scripture also makes clear elsewhere, that the coming of the Son into the world was agreed upon. It was the agreed upon plan of the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past. God the Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They are as divine and all-knowing and all-powerful as each other. But in their plan to bring salvation to sinners, the Father, Son, and Spirit, friends, agreed that the Son would be sent. I mentioned to you last week that a great theme of John's Gospel is that the Father sent the Son and the Son willingly, voluntarily, freely came. This was not something that Jesus did against his will. Jesus says in John 6 verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So friends, the coming of Jesus Christ his coming into a manger for a bed, in amongst the stinking straw and livestock, in amongst men and women who would not worship him and would not honour him, was planned in eternity. It was also, as Paul describes here, a miracle in time. It was planned in eternity and it was a miracle in time. Paul says he was born of woman. And of course, he's referring there to the virgin birth, that incredible miracle at the heart of Christ's coming, that he was born of a virgin. But again, friends, we shouldn't limit our thinking there to uh, the, 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 the narratives, the stories that we're very well familiar with hearing at this time of year. Because in describing it this way, born of woman, Paul is, I think, taking us all the way back also to Genesis to that very first gospel proclamation that God made after the fall, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring singular and her offspring singular. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. It was the woman's seed, the one to be born of woman, God said, who would undo Satan's curse. Paul says he was born of woman, born under the law to redeem us. We'll think more about that in a moment. But to redeem us, friends, Jesus had to become like us, born of a woman. And yet he was without sin. He was born in the lowliness and infirmity, the catechism says, of human flesh. That is to say that though he remained without sin, he knew what it was to tire. He knew what it was to be sick. He knew what it was to be heartbroken. He knew what it was to be hungry. And he was born under law, the law that God has given to all human beings, which 
tells us how we must live and what we must do and what we must not do if we're to enjoy life with God. And so the Holy Spirit conceived Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Gabriel said to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Meaning that no human man was involved because Jesus had to be without sin and therefore he was conceived miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit and yet conceived in a virgin's womb to grow up a woman's son taught the commands of God. And friends, I put it to you that one of the ways that we know Christianity must be true is because no one would ever make up something like this. Imagine you're, you're part of a group of Jewish people or any other group of people in the first century Roman world and you want to come up with some new religion, some new cause to get people to listen to you, get people to go along with your belief system. Do you come up with this? A virgin bearing a son who is fully human and yet also fully God? No human being would dream up something like this and expect it to be successful. And the way we know that is because look at every other religion and what they have come up with. Islam, Roman Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, even the kind of individualism, which is a religion in itself for many people today. They all amount to the same thing. Do these things, go to these places, avoid these mistakes, achieve this standard and you will be saved. And while the pretense of other religions might be that Allah or God or Buddha is some kind of saviour. In fact what all of these other beliefs have in common is that you ultimately need to save yourself. And that's what appeals ultimately to sinful, proud, self-centred human beings. I can do it myself. Instead Paul says when the fullness of time had come God sent his son born of woman, born under the law. It was planned in eternity. It was a miracle in time. Joel Beakey, reflecting in this passage, says, The ruler is made of a woman and becomes a child. The most high God becomes the most lowly of creatures. The essential word of God becomes a speechless, crying child. The all-sufficient, a helpless babe. The almighty, Wrapped in swaddling clothes. An amazing miracle. Why? Well as we considered in Psalm 113. He went so low. So that we sinners could be raised up. So that slaves could become sons. And receive their inheritance. So friends again. We we must not just think that it's just a nice story. About a baby born. It's the son of God who was born and grew up in human flesh under the law. It's a miracle we could ponder for the rest of our lives and yet never exhaust its power and importance. Martin Luther says it's a mystery the depths of which we can never fully understand. The question is not though whether we fully understand it. The question is do you believe it? Do you believe it? You are sons of God, not through understanding, Paul says in Galatians 3.26, but through faith. Is that true of you tonight? 
You're not claiming to understand everything about this. Personally, I'm very thankful for God that my tiny brain can't fully understand. Because if God was small enough for my brain to understand him, he'd be a very small God indeed. We should be thankful for a God who is far beyond the understanding of any, any one of us. And yet a God who has made himself known to us. And a God in whom we believe by faith. And in faith we praise God and thank God for his indescribable gift of sending his son born of a woman. So when God sent his son, how God sent his son. And thirdly and finally this evening, why God sent the son. Why God sent his son. Paul says that not only was Jesus born of woman, but also that he was born under the law. You sometimes hear people say, so-and-so acts as if they're above the law. Uh, Maybe someone goes speeding past you at 90 miles per hour in the motorway. They're acting as though they're above the law, that the law of 70 miles per hour doesn't apply to them. Well, if a police car goes past you at 90 miles per hour, it doesn't bother you. Uh, The police car, in a sense, is above the law. They are using the means at their disposal to chase down criminals, presumably. The Lord Jesus Christ, friends, from all eternity as God, he was the law giver. He didn't need to be the law keeper. So why did he choose to become one? Well, Paul gives us three reasons here why Jesus was born of woman and born under the law. First of all, he says it was to redeem us. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem here means to liberate or to set free. It also has the sense of paying the price for someone or something. In the ancient world where slavery was common, if you wanted to redeem a slave, if if you wanted to make a slave a free person, uh, you had to pay a price, the price that the master set. That was the redemption price so that the slave could go free. And it's the same for us, spiritually speaking, friends. There is a price that must be paid. We thought earlier about how we are enslaved to the law, that the law is our guardian and our master, and it's, it's oppressive to us. We're enslaved to it in the sense that we can never keep it. We can never get past it. And there is a penalty for breaking that law, namely death. But by Jesus being born of a woman and born under the law, he came to pay the redemption price. He came to offer up his own perfect life. That was the price that needed to be paid. A life of perfection so that we could be saved. And he's done that, of course, at Calvary. You can't really talk about Bethlehem without also talking about Calvary. We dare not separate the two. And at Calvary, on a tree, as we considered this morning, Jesus offered up his perfect sinless life. As a sacrifice, the price that had to be paid for human redemption. He came to redeem us. He came secondly to adopt us. To adopt us. Paul goes on in Galatians 4 verse 5. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And what Paul's saying here friends is that Jesus hasn't just as we're wiped our slate clean of our own sin. He has done that. But he hasn't left the slate blank. He has filled in our slate with his own perfect righteousness. And in doing so, he has given us a new status as sons of God. 
And again here Paul is using a picture from the Roman world. Uh, the word son here is a, is a legal, it was a legal term in Paul's world. Again, if a wealthy man in this case had no biological children of his own, he could choose to legally adopt one of his servants and make that servant the heir of his estate, the son. And friends, on the day that a man did that, the status of his servant changed in an instant. If you like, with a stroke of a pen, he was no longer a servant. He was the son. He was the heir. (coughs) Friends, that's the work of Jesus, God's only begotten son for us. By offering up his own precious life, paying the redemption price for us, the son of God makes all of us who believe sons of God. It makes us heirs of eternal life. You might ask, how do I know whether or not I really am adopted as a son of God and no longer enslaved to the law and to sin? Well, that leads us to the last thing that Paul tells us here about why God sent his son, not only to redeem us and to adopt us, but also, thirdly, to fill us. Look at Galatians 4, verse 6. Because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus came not only to redeem us and to adopt us, but to fill us with his spirit. Not only has God the Father sent the son, but to those who believe in the son, he also has sent the spirit And so here's the Trinity, friends, at the heart of our salvation. That salvation planned by the Father who sent the Son, who paid the price, who changed our status, and then the Spirit who changes our experience. And notice, friends, Paul doesn't say that it's some great show of drama that proves that you have the Spirit. Instead, he says that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the evidence will be that you cry out, To God, your Father, in prayer. That's one of the most important pieces of proof that you really are a son of God and not a slave of sin. Constant, regular, personal appeals in prayer to God, your Heavenly Father. I would imagine it's possible that if a child was adopted by a mother and father, maybe when they were 9, 10 years old or in their teens even, that it might take a bit of time for them to adjust to the idea that these people now are willing to provide whatever you need. That they're not going to see you go hungry or thirsty. They're going to clothe you. They're going to provide for you. It might take some time for that child to refer to that parent as father or mother, mum or dad. But eventually they will. And that new relationship will begin of father and son, parent and child. And likewise, friends, that's what's happened for us who are believers in Jesus Christ. We, we have a change of status through the work of the Son. We have a change of experience through the work of the Spirit. If you're a, homeowner, if you're a homeowner this evening, the day you bought your house, nothing particularly dramatic happened, I would imagine. But at the stroke of a pen, a legal change in status took place That home went into your name instead of the name of the previous occupant. And it was only later that 
you experience that ch- that the, the change that, that that legal transaction brought about. You began making a daily journey from and back to that house. You furnished it according to your tastes. You put your photos up on the walls. You invited your family and friends in uh, to, to spend time there. And similarly, friends, the, the son's work gives us our legal status. But the spirit's work changes our daily experience. We pray to God. We praise God. We speak of God with and to others. And so this is why God sent his son, friends, to redeem us, to to pay the price for our sins on the cross, to make it so that we could be adopted as sons of God, the heirs of eternal life, and for us to be filled with the Spirit and to have a change of daily experience. This is why it matters that once in royal David's city, a mother laid a baby in a manger for a bed. It's not just a story from long ago. It's what leads to the change that needs to happen in every one of our lives. I wonder, is this change taking place in your life? Is it your experience day to day that you know what it is to cry out, Father in heaven, here are my needs, here are my anxieties, here are the things that weigh me down, here's my praise of your glorious name, here's my confession of sin, in Jesus' name. If you don't have any experience of that, I urge you this evening, by faith, believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up his gracious offer of his life for your sins, his inheritance shared with you, his status, son of God, given also to you. And he will give you the Holy Spirit who will direct you and guide your life as a child of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Thanks be to God. For his indescribable gift. Amen.